Yeah, I've had and, people who have just said flat, flat out in the end, I agree with Catholic doctrine, but I can't enter a church with this kind of sin. You know, they've yeah. just said that flat out. Yeah. But then I meet other people who, who will say, um, well, in theory, I've been reading about how Christ would preserve the church, the Holy Spirit would preserve the church mm-hmm. no matter uh, what kind of scandals or, or difficulties might arise. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting to see that proven before my very eyes. <laughs> Welcome to another common, but still somewhat attractive, just not in a conventional way, episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim. He's Ken Hensley. Uh, both of us came from our various evangelical Protestant travels into the Catholic Church. We've been trying to make a some sort of a defense of why we did that, and I hope that some of it makes sense. Uh, but in the meantime, we are very glad that you're along. Uh, this, of course, is a program that is a production of the Coming Home Network International. Visit us at chnetwork.org, and especially... Come join the ongoing conversation in our online community, which is community.chnetwork.org. Ken, uh, we're kind of wrapping a bit of a series on the Reformation, and we're, uh, just by its nature, going to leave a whole lot of stones unturned because the Reformation is a very large topic. Uh, But Mm -hmm. are you ready to go today? Yes, I am, and I'm happy to see you again all the way across the country. I am kind of excited, I was telling you, because I'm taking a bit of a vacation. My wife and I are going to be leaving this Saturday for a while. So, by the way, I will not be here to record with you next week. So okay. you'll have to do a monologue if you want to record something. No, I'll probably um, schedule some yeah. sort of a therapy session for that. <clears throat> you mean to, yeah, to ease the, the pain? To fill in the emotional offload that I get each week <laughs> taping with you. So someone yeah. else is going to have to hear me. Okay, you said it well. Yeah, if we wanted to do a thorough series on the Reformation, there, there'd be so much to say. This is a short series, and the, the focus of this series was to answer two questions. What was the Reformation? You know, and in, in, in essence, what was it? I mean, what was it about? <clears throat> and then secondly, why did it happen? And why did it happen when it happened? So to recap a bit, in our first episode, addressing the question, what was the Reformation? You and I argued that at its heart, the Reformation was a dispute over the foundational issue of authority, okay? At its heart. That's what it was. It was a dispute over the foundational issue, the fundamental issue of authority. Yes, the Reformation involved a dispute about doctrine. As a professor at the University of Wittenberg, in fact, Luther began to teach and write, attacking the church on a number of issues, really, including the doctrine of justification, in fact, primarily the doctrine of justification. The church said, this is really boiling it down, the church said, you're wrong, Martin. Uh, Luther said, no, you're wrong, I'm right, about in my interpretation of St. Paul. The church said, no, you're wrong. Luther said, no, you're wrong, I'm right. The church said, finally, but what you are teaching, Martin, contradicts the settled doctrine of the church. And at this point, a dispute about a doctrine um, became a dispute about something much more fundamental. Where is authority to be located? We all agree the inspired scriptures are authoritative, 
but interpreted by who? That is, whose job is it though to read the, uh, the inspired scriptures and draw from them the correct doctrine, the apostolic faith? Who has the authority? Is it the magisterium of the church reflecting through the years on scripture and tradition, meeting an ecumenical council and drawing out the truths of the faith, defining them? Or is it each believer individually? Well, faced with this question, Luther famously replied, unless I am convinced by the testimony of scripture or by evident reason, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis my conscience is captive to the word of God. And as, as we've seen in our series on Sola Scriptura and, and other things, in fact, on, on authority, you know, Luther said many other things at the time, too. Luther said, you know, each Christian is his own pope and council. So this is, this is the main issue. That, that's what uh, the, at least I've been trying to bring out, is that the fundamental issue of the Reformation was that of authority. And in yeah. saying that, what I'm saying is that the separation that occurred in the early 16th century between Catholic and Protestant, it was not at its heart a separation over uh, one doctrine or two or three doctrines. It was a separation essentially between those who continued to embrace the idea that the Lord Jesus had established on earth an authoritative church that would speak in his name and that the Catholic Church was that church, and those who rejected that to stand on the authority of Scripture alone and the right of private judgment, the right of each Christian to decide for himself. At its heart, you know, it was it's a much more fundamental than the question of justification itself, uh, which mm-hmm. even various reformers came to different conclusions on how that all worked. And just so you know, this is not meant to be some kind of dodge on the whole debate over justification. As a matter of fact, if you think that we're throwing the buser out with the bathwater, we have tackled justification before. In a 18-part series called "A Damning Systems A System of Works Righteousness," which you can go to chnetwork.org/slash/on-the-journey and find 18 full-on yeah. episodes of us talking about that particular debate. But it wasn't right. so much as you indicate the doctrinal dispute itself, but it was the, what the doctrinal dispute revealed about the way that people thought about Christianity. Yeah. Period, and that was what splintered everything. Yes, it was. It, it was the doctrinal dispute that provided an opportunity to for for the for the disputants to go deeper and realize the fundamental issue on the bottom line is that of authority who has authority and this remains the heart of the disagreement to this day matt there are now as you and i know a great number of protestant sects and denominations and independent churches and movements of all sorts and more coming into existence literally every day of the week. And while these groups disagree on many things, a whole range of doctrinal and moral issues, there's something upon which they are in perfect agreement. Jesus did not establish a church with the authority to decide matters of faith and practice. That is something every believer is able to do on his own, on her own. God has given us his word in the inspired scriptures. God has given us his spirit God has given us faithful pastors and teachers who can help us to understand these things. What more is needed? Or to quote our Protestant scholars, Norman Geisler and Ralph McKenzie, defining sola scriptura in these words, the Bible, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else is all that is necessary for faith and practice. Okay, so this is what the Reformation was. 
And there's a wide spectrum of how people interpret that statement by Geisler. There's a wide, wide spectrum of how people interpret even the understanding of what does it mean to have the individual believer have the authority to interpret Scripture? Because even within some of those denominations, you'll still find them say, well, you know, we as a church have come to the conclusion of what this says about these things, um, mm-hmm. and you can't just come up with your own stuff, right? The church, our our founders yeah. have thought this through pretty well, but still there's this spectrum yeah. of like, where is authority, and can we vote on? As I mean, can I have one vote as one member when it comes to our general congr- yeah. con- conference to, to say, well, this is not what I think it says? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a very different way of looking at Christianity than we see in the Council of Jerusalem than we see in the Catholic Church. It is a very complicated kind of thing because Luther obviously stood on, he said, unless I am convinced, you know, unless you convince me, you know, Scripture is my basis. So he stood upon Scripture, but then as his doctrine was elaborated in the Augsburg Confession, then after that, if you want to be a good Lutheran, you have to agree with the Confession. Um, you have the Westminster Confession for the Presbyterian Church, the Baptist 1689 Confession. So groups, as you said, yeah, they have over time all formulated their confessions, and they would say that their confession is authoritative in the sense that it's a clear authoritative statement of what our denomination believes. But each Christian, in theory, is still free to do what Luther did, to study and to read and decide differently, and if you do, you shift from one denomination to another one. Okay, but anyway... In our second and third episodes, then, we asked the second question, that is, why did, why did the Reformation happen? And also, why did it happen when it happened? After all, when you think of it, at the time that Luther and Calvin and the other Reformers came on the scene, the Catholic Church had held its position of spiritual authority for a very long time. I mean, 15 centuries is a long time. So why that precise moment for the Reformation to occur. Why didn't it happen in the 12th century? Why not in the 8th century? Why not in the 11th century? Well, as we've seen, and we summarized over the, the course of two weeks, at that particular time in history, there were a number of historical and cultural, spiritual forces at work that, uh, that, that coordinating together, as it were, were driving the world in the direction of what was to happen. In fact, I would say that at the exact time that Martin Luther was sitting at his desk at the University of Wittenberg, writing his lectures on Paul's epistle to the Romans or Galatians, really at the exact time that the young John Calvin, which is about 15 years later, was you know walking around the streets of the Latin Quarter in Paris, where he was attending the University of Paris, talking with his friends about theology, about culture, about what was happening in the world at the time. A cultural revolution, and that's not too strong a word, a cultural revolution was taking place throughout Catholic Europe, throughout Christendom. And let me quickly list these factors that you and I looked at over the course of two weeks, to just list them now. There was the invention of the printing press that resulted in a dramatic increase in literacy throughout Christendom, as for the very first time in human history, inexpensive tracts, pamphlets, and books were available to the average person. There was an explosion of new theological ideas at the time. Colleges and universities were beginning to spring up all over Christendom, and new faculties of theology that were tossing around all these new ideas that were being talked about, that were being written about, that were being printed, and were being uh, disseminated all over the place. There was the rise of an educational philosophy. We 
looked at, humanism, that was taking roots in the universities, especially at the time. This philosophy mocked the doctors of the church, that is the official doctors of the church, and advocated a, a return in their minds to the pure study of the Old and New Testaments, as well as the church fathers as you can see, leading in the direction of Sola Scriptura. There was a growing emphasis on religion as something very personal. And, and in that sense, an emphasis away from the church, the corporateness of it all. There was growing spirit of independence, individualism. This was reflected in resentment of centralized authority of all kinds, centralized authority of the church, as well as the centralized authority of the state. Nationalism was on the rise. So individualism of the person, individualism of states and peoples. There was the rise of the middle class in Europe, feeding the spirit of individualism. See, there's so many forces all working together. Anti-papal sentiment was flourishing at the time, partly for financial reasons. The Germans, especially we read about, they resented having to send their hard-earned money over the Alps to Italy and to the church in Rome to support what they viewed to be an extravagant and decadent Vatican hierarchy. And um, there were also moral reasons for this anti-clericalism, because the fact is the Vatican hierarchy at the time was extravagant, and it was decadent. The church's hierarchy was in desperate need of spiritual and moral reform. And we quoted last week the admission of Pope Hadrian VI, who was writing during the earliest years of the Reformation, um, and admitting this openly, this is what he said, we know that for years there have been many abominable offenses in spiritual matters and violations of the commandments committed at this holy see. Yes, that everything, in fact, has been perverted. The first thing that must be done is to reform the curia, the Vatican leadership. The origin, he says, of all the evil. So you put all these forces together. <clears throat> you put all this together, Matt. You know, the independence, the new ideas, the books, the colleges, the university, this educational philosophy, and then the sins of the church, the corruption of the church and the hierarchy at the time. And it all fits. And it tells us that when Luther emerged on the stage of history, Luther emerged onto a stage that was really in nearly every way imaginable prepared for the role that he was about to play or Another analogy that I've used is, is to say this. If Luther caused the Reformation, as many believe, he caused the Reformation like a man who strikes a match in a room filled with gas causes a fire. In other words, the atmosphere was already there. The room that we call Christendom was just filled <laughs> with the, the correct atmosphere. All that was needed to burn down the entire house was a single spark, really. And I think if people are wondering why we chose to do a four-part series on the Reformation um, rather than a 500-part series on the Reformation, or why we chose to do anything on the Reformation at all rather than just let it ride and let other people talk about the Reformation, it's because I think that there are so often in discussions about the Reformation uh, either some kind of triumphalist thing like, well, the church was not that bad. These people were overplaying their hand. No, the church was messed up. Or, uh, you know, the Enlightenment, you know, was just trying to destroy the vision of the human person. Well, actually, a lot of things that went on, a lot of philosophies, a lot of things that popped out of this era are pretty good and are pretty vibrant and healthy strains in the world today. The development of the university system, you know, the, uh, the rise of literacy. I mean, these are kind of good things. 
Um, or to say, <laughs> yes. you know, let's just psychoanalyze Martin Luther. And just so you know, Protestants, your whole, you know, empire of revolt against the church is built on the ravings of some guy who's just too scrupulous and, you know, can't take a joke. It, it, there are so many ways that you can, like, double yeah. down on this talking point or that talking point or this other talking point. And I think it's just important to understand, you know, what what was going on in the heart of Europe, what was mm-hmm. going on in the heart of the church. And, it, you know, to me, when I read this stuff and go back over it and you know, study our notes mm-hmm. as we get prepared, I don't think to myself, well, that person's right and that person's an idiot. I just think, man, my heart breaks. Um that is, it's turned out the way yeah. it has. Yeah, and I think that I, I think that the main thing, if anything, that comes out of this, and my my desire to do this series, is the is the is the sympathy that it gives me for where people are and and how people feel and and how people feel who are looking at the Catholic Church now too, because this does apply to our current situation. Or, or let me put it as a question. How does this apply to our current situation? How does it apply to those who have made the journey into the Catholic Church, like you and I, and to those in the process of making the journey? Well, and here's the first thing that comes to my mind. When I think through this list, Matt, when I think through these various historical and cultural and spiritual forces that we've looked at that led to the explosion that we call the Reformation, the main thought that occurs to me is this. Have we not been simply describing the rise of the modern world, the world in which you and I now live? In other words, 500 years have transpired since the Reformation occurred, since Luther took his stand, and we find ourselves now living in a world in which the trends of thought and feeling that led to the Reformation in the 16th century have become nothing less than the established assumptions of contemporary life. In other words, these forces that we're building and that brought about this break, these are the forces we still live with. These are the forces that have become foundational, really. And and you make a good point. Yes, of course, many of them taken one by one are good and true. Um, you know, even the focus on religion as something personal, you know, is a good thing. Of course, reading is a good thing. Um, all of that. And yet the point is that, that, these assum- that, that these forces led to the Reformation and these are the forces we live with. Let's think them through a little bit. Okay, talk about the printing press and the proliferation of printed materials. Okay, they had the printing press. We've got the internet. And of course, not so much printed materials through the internet, but enough information to drive you and I insane and to drive every person on earth mad. We've got that. Talk about an explosion of ideas and points of view. I think it was Chesterton. Well, in fact, I know it was Chesterton who once commented that when people stop stop believing in God, it's not like they believe in nothing. Rather, they believe in, what do you say? Anything. Anything. Yeah, or they're liable to believe in anything. Well, look around. This is one thing that makes evangelism of any kind so difficult is we live in a society now in which the number of points of view is just amazing. It's just beyond belief. Um, everybody believes anything. Everybody believes everything. You can find anything. And even within Christianity, this is true. Um, I think about Luther's complaint when he said there are as many views as there are heads. There are as many beliefs now as there are heads. You and I live in a world now, and I mean, everyone listening, we live in a world now 
in which we are just surrounded by information, knowledge, bad knowledge, good knowledge, ideas of every kind. So we're living in the same place. Talk about individualism. Talk about an emphasis on religion as something personal. Well, it's gone beyond now. Now the, the emphasis is on religion as something entirely private. You know, and again, forget the world in general. All, all we have to do really, I think, is witness the slow decline and demise of confessional forms of Christianity in the West and the simultaneous growth of independent Christian fellowships, many of whom have as their only real doctrinal position, me and Jesus. We see this. Denominations are dying. People don't go for the corporate. Everything is personal. Everything is private. And when it comes to the state, it's the same thing too. As far as the state's concerned, they would like us to keep our religion completely at home and uh, you know, on Sunday mornings and in, at home and having nothing to do with public life whatsoever. Yeah, Individualism is in, the name of the game. Yeah, you see some of this in the, uh, the talking points and the debate over the question of freedom of religion versus freedom of worship. Well, freedom of religion means that you have the freedom to practice your religion. Freedom of worship means that you can do anything you want in that building over there. But even with that, uh, the, the, the rise of individualism within the way that churches market themselves to um, the people they're trying to attract. Um, you know, there's, within megachurch culture, you sometimes hear, uh, at least the last time I paid seriously close attention to, you know, actual documents and consulting materials for people who are trying to build such things, the notion of uh, reducing cognitive dissonance between someone's uh, entertainment life, their consumer life, and their church life, mm -hmm. so that when they walk mm -hmm. into a building where they're going to have their praise and worship service and a talk, they feel um, and recognize various things in the building that appeal to the same, them the same way that it appealed to them when they were walking through the aisles at Target or when they were deciding which movie to go to. Um, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's marketed to, to the individual. And there may be a big group of people in there, but the second that one of those customers is dissatisfied. Out the door. Out the door. Yeah, so, I mean, it's something that, you know, I think a lot of Protestants lament too uh, because, I mean, I know I lamented it as a Protestant. This sort of just sea of individualism, um, the sea of absolutist relativism, like, you know, it's whatever the Holy Spirit tells me, whatever the Holy Spirit tells me. I mean, there, there's yeah. relativism in the sense that, you know, we are all supposed to be hearing from the Holy Spirit, but it's absolutism because whatever I hear excludes the conclusions that all the rest of you come to. It's just a bizarre, a bizarre world to live in. Yeah, so... An explosion of ideas, subjectivism, Christianity going more and more toward the individual, as you said, marketing. There was a church back east that I knew about. They had actually built those kinds of um, pipes that you see at McDonald's or something so that the kids, the parents could drop the kids off in the parking lot and they jump up and they slide down a pipe into the church, you know. <laughs> That's, but anyway, just a funny little aside there. But the point, obviously, is that all of the forces that were at play at the time that were leading in the direction of the, of the shattering of Christendom we see in our modern world today. Okay, talk about the distrust of authority. Okay, well, I'm, we've been talking about individualism of so many kind. Think about the distrust of authority. I mean, we see this within Christianity as churches become more and more fragmented, 
more and more independent, more and more subjective, and more and more non-theological. I've got books written by Protestant scholars who are just tearing their hair out over the fact that, that, that the evangelical world cares less and less about doctrine, cares less and less about theology, and that it's more and more, as I said, about, you know, it's a subjective kind of me and Jesus thing. Um, the trend can be seen everywhere. Um, a book that came out some a few decades ago that I read was Alan Bloom's classic book, The Closing of the American Mind, in which he points out, he was a professor in Chicago, and he points out that um, the authority of reason itself, I mean, he basically says, you know, moral relativism has been in the wind for a long time. He says, but what I'm facing is epistemological relativism. He said, I'm facing a room full of students who do not even believe in the in the in the absoluteness of truth that there is any absolute truth reason itself he complained is distrusted in favor of what i feel you know everything now the way they say it now is your lived experience is all that really matters you know so we live in a world now it's not a matter of just rejecting an authoritative church we've come to where people reject authority of all kinds reject logic we live in a world now where you could stand up and say two and two equals four and you can know that someone is going to dispute it. You know, you could say triangles have to have three sides. Someone's going to say, Matt, that's just your opinion. Or they're going to say, oh, well, that's just white supremacy being forced on us, you know, to say that two and two equals four, something like that. So the rejection of authority is in the culture as well. And then finally, talk about a church in need of spiritual renewal. I mean, we've got that one too. We've got... Every one of the factors that led toward the Reformation are factors that not only exist now, but exist in spades, and many of them have become the, the absolute bottom line foundational assumptions of, of the modern way of thinking. But this thing about a church in need of spiritual renewal, you and I both work in the field of Catholic apologetics, Catholic evangelism, really. And I got to tell you, this, this is the issue that many on the road to the Catholic Church that I deal with that I talk to struggle with really the most. And that is, I, I, I talk to people all the time, Matt, who ha have read the early church fathers, have begun to read lives of the saints, have read good Catholic theology and apologetics and found, found themselves drawn toward a, a vision of the beauty of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And they want to, they want to enter it. They want to have access to the fullness of the truth. They want to have access to the sacraments. And then they have to start hearing about financial corruption, you know, the Vatican Bank, or sexual um, abuse, sexual sin, weak leadership, you know, heretical theologians that are left to teach and to publish, you know. And, and it's really hard for them. It's really hard for them. Just wonder, you know, how do you deal with that question? Well, it's funny that you should ask that. I dealt with that question before I started thinking seriously about the Catholic Church. And it's because the thing that set my whole journey in motion and got me thinking a lot more seriously about what really does it mean to be a Christian was a scandal in my own particular church uh, involving a pastor uh, and some infidelity. And it blew up our whole church, right? And it caused me to mistrust hierarchy of any kind for a good long while. And so all the baggage that I had you know, this whole question of, of corruption and scandal in the church, <laughs> I, I saw it everywhere when I was still thinking of church with a lowercase c, 
because I was looking mm-hmm. around the Christian music industry of which I was a part um, in my late teens into early 20s and seeing all kinds of corruption and scandals going on with uh, record labels and promoters and bands and I saw it everywhere. I saw it everywhere and it distilled the question for me mm-hmm. what is truth? Um, what's what's the what's the what's the true thing? Because that's where I'm going to go. Uh, to whom shall I go, Lord? You have the words of mm-hmm. eternal life. So it's it, what's mm-hmm. funny is that I talk to some of these people too, Ken, and for some of them, they have that major hang-up of the corruption in the church, the scandal. The sometimes it's not even corruption or scandal; it's just the bureau- bureaucratic inefficiency of the church. Right? It's just bad management. Yeah, I've had and, people who have just said flat flat out in the end. I agree with Catholic doctrine, but I can't enter, enter a church with this kind of sin. You know, they yeah. just said that flat out. Yeah. But then I meet other people who, who will say, um, well, in theory, I've been reading about how Christ would preserve the church, the Holy Spirit would preserve the church mm-hmm. no matter uh, what kind of scandals or, or difficulties might arise. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting to see that proven before my very eyes. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, well, you know um, what? There... There are a couple of practical things that I have in my mind that I that I do want to share that that I try to communicate to people, and maybe you you will reflect, I'm sure, on each one of these. But these are a few things that I try to keep in mind, given given the stuff that has happened in the last 10, 20, 30 years in the Catholic Church in America and in the West. Um, first, I remind myself that the Catholic Church is a global church, and this is important. This is an important point. That is. We're not dealing with a church that exists only at one particular time and in one particular place. There are places and there are times when the Catholic Church has been on fire and producing all kinds of saints. You know, I I read Cardinal Seurat and the works that he's done, you know, the African Cardinal. The reports, uh, he reports on the incredible explosive growth of the Catholic Church in Africa. In fact, I don't have the numbers right, but he says something like at the beginning of the 20th century, there's like 2 million Catholics. At the end of the 20th century, there's like 200 million. And there are vibrant churches, vibrant Catholics there. The church is on fire in many places. I think of the underground church in China, many of them suffering. I think of the Vietnamese martyrs and some of the stories I've heard. So that's point number one, is to keep in my mind that the church is a global church. It exists all over the world, and it exists through time for 2,000 years. There are times and places where the church has been on fire. There are times and there are places when it is not. This is number one. Um, a second point that I, I try to keep in mind is this, the basic thing. The church is comprised of people. It's comprised of people who are prone to all the temptations of this life, people who are just like me, people who can fall, people who can be tempted by power, that can be tempted by money, can be tempted by sexual, you know, temptation. These are people that can fall. And so this, this doesn't, this doesn't equate to this cannot be the true church. I mean, Jesus said you will know them by their fruits. And yes, individually, yes, you may know a person's, uh, the depth of a person's spirituality and commitment to Christ by their life. But the church at large is, is made up of saints and sinners. It's all mixed together. And so you can't say, I mean, unless you want to say that the whole church is sinful and all the people in the church are sinful, you really can't say that. Um, which leads to the third one. I'll throw this out and then, then listen to your comment. The third point that I try to keep in mind, I mean, number one is that the church is a global church. Number two is that it's comprised of people. 
just like me, weak people. Third is this, the corruption that exists among us, some of our priests, some of our bishops, some of our members, the ability of the Holy Spirit to preserve the church in the, in the truth of the apostolic faith is another issue entirely. Think of it like this. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit used a man who had committed adultery and then committed murder to cover up his adultery and was known as a man whose hands were filled with blood, talking about King David. The Holy Spirit used him to lead his people. And he was referred to as the man after God's own heart. As He's the great leader. He's not the bad one in the Old Testament, like Manasseh or whatever. He, he's the great leader. And then in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit chose a man who at the critical moment denied three times that he even knew who Jesus was and cursed. He denied it with an oath. Peter and the Holy Spirit used him to lead the church. So the fact that there are sinners, even in the hierarchy, I, I want to keep in mind and I want to convey to others, doesn't destroy the Holy Spirit's ability to lead the church in the truth and preserve the church in the truth. What do you think about that? I, I think that those are three great points. I want to add a fourth in just a moment, but just very quickly on your three points. You said, sure. first, the church is global. Second, the church is full of sinners. <laughs> um, <laughs> and third, the Holy Spirit has promised to preserve the church. Mm -hmm. On that idea of the global church, you mentioned the church exploding in Africa uh, with, you know, just, it's just growing in leaps and bounds. That's not the first time that the church has done that in Africa. Um, here in the month of September, we celebrate the Feast of St. Cyprian of Carthage, who, if you've never read his fourth mm -hmm. treatise on the Lord's Prayer, go read it. He's writing in the second and third centuries, and it's brilliant. Augustine of Hippo comes from Carthage. We got the School of Alexandria, which just pumped out scholars and exegetes and saints. Mm -hmm. And then it was wiped out by the rise of Islam, essentially. Um, there mm -hmm. are other complicating factors, but essentially by the 7th century, all that's basically gone. And now it's back. Uh, and while it's getting crushed in one place, it's popping up somewhere else. And when it's falling into sin and relativism in one mm -hmm. continent, it's you know, rising to new life and vigor on another continent. Uh, it's a global church. And every single denomination I was ever a part of growing up was a denomination that had been founded and had its core headquarters of leadership in the United States of America. Every single denomination I was ever mm. a part of. And it always spoke from that perspective. It meant it was only always only as old as the United States, usually younger, but also because it when it spoke of the world, that was the mission field. When the Catholic Church speaks of the world, they say, this is the body of Christ, right? And that's a different perspective. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was certainly mm -hmm. a different perspective mm -hmm. for me. Um, but the, on that second point, the church is comprised of people, people who are prone to temptation, sinners, we'll just call them that. Every time I see a church leader fall, um, or I see someone who is supposed to be a, an example of what it means to be a good Catholic, make a huge moral mistake. That doesn't tell me that the church is wrong about things. It tells me that the church is right about sin, right? <laughs> I mean, and I've seen that play out in my own life more times than I'm willing to admit on this here little podcast. Then the Holy Spirit's promise to preserve. You mentioned a whole tirade of things, Ken, 
about everything that was going on in the Reformation. You talked about the rise of individualistic religion, uh, nation building and nationalism. You talked about uh, the centers of authority being the academy, the universities. You talked about all kinds of things, the explosion of all these informations and ideas. That that happened in the Reformation. It's happening times 500 bajillion mm-hmm. today. You would think the church would be gone by now, right? And yet she's not. Yes. Um, so something else is happening there. Uh, but I want to add a fourth factor to consider to all that. And I don't know if it fits necessarily with all the other factors. But the fourth is a, a reflection point that I had to come to as I was thinking about um, all the swirling things about the Reformation. And that that question that I began to ask myself is, who is celebrating the Reformation and why are they celebrating it? The people who are celebrating the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Who are these people and why are they celebrating it? Because even in my evangelical Wesleyan Bible College, we were celebrating the Reformation. We read Roland Bainton's um, Here I Here Stand, I stand. Uh, in uh, our Western Civ class. And as I'm reading through it, I'm like, we Wesleyans don't believe any of this stuff <laughs> that Luther's ready to like go to the racks for. Why are we celebrating Martin Luther? And it was because, um, essentially for us, he you know spit in the Pope's eye and lived to tell, right? Mm-hmm. Therefore, he made it possible for everybody else to spit in the Pope's eye and live to tell. We were Wesleyans, right? We were off of a branch of Anglicans. They split with... They're a branch off of Henry VIII, right? And the, the English Reformation. But we celebrated him for that. But before that, when I was reading about Martin Luther in a public school textbook, he was celebrated not because of his you know, liberating views on justification and faith alone, but because he started the trajectory out of medieval superstition into enlightenment. Yeah, yeah. Um, so and, that these forces, we, so you can say these forces that were at play at the time were the forces creating the modern world, and he's viewed as being someone who helped those guys. usher us into the modern world. Yeah. So, so as I'm yeah. looking back and seeing who is celebrating the Reformation, and why are they celebrating it? And actually, Stanley Hauerwas has a very great article, actually a Reformation Day sermon that he gave, mm-hmm. Hauerwas, a Protestant theologian, that kind of asks essentially that question. Um, and and I, would, I would ask every serious Protestant, uh, every serious Christian of any kind, um, even when I wouldn't have called myself a Protestant, but I would still have thought positively about the Reformation, why am I celebrating this? What is it, why is it that I think this is a fantastic thing? Um, mm-hmm. who's, who else out there is saying this is great and why are they saying it's great? Because essentially there are some people out there who don't even believe in a basic philosophical anthropology, who don't even believe in like what society has believed for all time constitutes a human being, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who celebrate Martin Luther because he opened the door for them to be able to say, well, you are whatever you think you are, you know? Um, the end of the individualism, yeah, the, the individualism. individualism that came out of that time, yeah, and in fact, this is why I say that that what this subject does is is it helps me to sympathize, because because I can see now that my own conversion to Catholicism involved really swimming upstream against all of the currents that we've been talking about here. That is, uh, Catholicism is 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 is, is anti. I mean, no. Catholicism is countercultural to the max, and 
I had to swim upstream against all of these four forces in order to become a Catholic. Going back a long time, I remember walking into a local Christian bookstore when I when I was a young Christian. You know, I wanted to learn the teachings of Christianity. Very soon, I, I discovered that there were different views on almost everything. That it was all fractured, it was all broken up, and I would have to learn not just one view. Um, you know, the Bible's view, because there were all kinds of people claiming this is the Bible's view. But being a, a child of the modern world myself, for many, for many, many years, I viewed this as a definite sign of humility, that everyone had his own opinion. Uh, no one held his opinion to be authoritative or binding on anyone else. I thought that was humility. The only historic Christian church that made the absurd claim to being an authoritative church and speaking authoritatively for the apostles was the Catholic Church. And everyone, at least everyone I knew, understood that Catholicism was just some strange throwback to the Middle Ages, you know, to a time when people were just stupid and just listened to authority and believed whatever they were told. You see, <clears throat> Catholicism doesn't fit with, with, with many of these modern trends that we've been discussing. And, but, but in my life, of course, all this fit very naturally with the belief in Sola Scriptura then and the right of private judgment. I mean, it was just very natural for me to believe that if I wanted to learn the true Christian doctrines, um, I wouldn't listen to official doctors of the church, but I would go back to the sources, you know, the humanist educational philosophy, you know, back to the sources. I would read the Old Testament, I would read the New, and I would decide for myself. And, and I did this for about 20 years. In fact, for me, becoming Catholic involved really going against the grain of how I had come to think about many things. And, and, and when I look at it that way, it almost seems like a miracle. It seems like a miracle that I became Catholic. But all this makes me sympathize. That's the point I want to come to. All of this makes me really sympathize with, with the struggle that people feel. Not only are we surrounded by a million ideas and everybody claiming to have the truth, the individualism and all that, not only are we surrounded by the subjectivism, that religion is just something personal, it's just me and it's just between me and God, if there is a God. Not only are we, are we surrounded by all of these forces that tell us to reject authority of any kind, I can see then that, that when it comes to the claims of the Catholic Church, people would find th those claims strange. Just modern people will find those claims strange. I, I can see why it would be much more natural for a modern believer in Jesus to be Protestant than to be Catholic. Um, the, the historical, the cultural forces that led to the Reformation, after all, are the, the assumptions that most people live with as, as feeling totally natural. In fact, let me push it a step further. I can see why it would be more natural for a modern believer in Christ to be Protestant. I can also see why it would be more natural for them to be more independent and non-denominational now as time goes on than to be a member of one of the more confessional denominations. Because when you think about it, the more you move down the food chain from Catholic to total Bible-only church, read it, decide for yourself kind of church, the more one's Christianity fits with the assumptions of the modern world. And so I am, you know, I'm just filled with sympathy for people who come to the Coming Home Network even and come to talk to us who in, in one way have found themselves strongly attracted to the Catholic Church and yet are pulled in the other direction because all of these cultural forces are lining up against them becoming Catholic all, almost. 
Yeah, I so, asked a question um, in our online community a few years back. <clears throat> this posed a question, how far do you have to go back through your genealogy to find your Catholic ancestors? Because at one point, mm. all Christians were essentially Catholic unless they were, yeah. you know, in the Eastern Orthodox. I mean, if you want to go back to, you know, the 11th yeah. century, you could do that. But in terms of, like, the West, you got that. But yes. but even, uh, you know, I live in the D.C. area, and um, on my street, there are people from countries from all over the world. And some of them uh, grew up in the United States. Their parents came over here. And whatever country they came from, their parents are absolutely fluent in that language. But the neighbors that I have on my street, closer to my age, they speak English, and they speak the language from the country that their parents came here from. But those people's kids don't speak a lick of the native language, <laughs> right? At this point, they're just fully they're just fully American and they don't have an accent, they don't have anything. Uh, so take that and multiply it to, by all the generations that have happened since the Reformation and especially here in the United States, which is built essentially on things like education and individualism mm -hmm. and enlightenment and personal responsibility and patriotism and, and a whole bunch of other things. And the next thing you know, it's like, well, of course it's all going to get viewed through whatever it means to be an American first. And that's going to be kind of the spin that you take. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it makes it, I know it made it hard for me, um, because it was, and, and, you know, a lot of people who are coming into the Catholic church and trying to see it with fresh eyes, um, you know, different than whatever they saw about it in the Godfather movies or whatever, they're thinking to themselves, I feel like I'm entering a foreign country. I feel like I need a translator. <laughs> I feel like I need a guide to tell me, like, where do I even go in this building, this Catholic church that I've wandered into? I don't even know what these things are for, you know? So, yeah, it's it's a it's a very different way of, of thinking about Christianity. And, uh, again, with that many generations removed mm -hmm. uh, from this original split, it's hard to, forget, hard to re even remember we don't have a cultural consciousness and a memory of what those battles were about. We just are people who have mm -hmm. reaped the the natural ends of those moods over the course of a dozen or more generations. Yeah, so let me, I, I, I've rambled on enough. Let me conclude by simply saying that that the Catholic Church is definitely countercultural. It, 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 it counters the modern world and the modern way of thinking. And therefore, it kind of makes sense to me that there's no church that is more hated by the secular world. You know, there's no church that is worse in their minds than the Catholic church because of the, well, because of the stands that it takes and all that, but, but, but because of the, it, it, the whole thing that it is, you know, the, this whole thing that is viewed as a throwback to the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages. But then to turn it around the other direction, Matt, I think... Um, I would suppose that this may be what makes it so attractive to some because there are a lot of people that are sick of the modern world in many ways. And there are many people that don't want to get out of their car and jump into a McDonald's, you know, slide tube to get into church. And, you know, and they don't want to come into church and, and just be catered to with, with exactly, you know, what they have outside the church. And so many people who are making the journey toward the Catholic church they are attracted by the idea of, of coming in and seeing something new. You know, I got to tell you, the, the only time I was ever in Paris, France, was when I took my daughter. I was a chaperone when she went on a high school trip. And she was firmly evangelical at the time, and I had become Catholic. But, man, was she ever moved when she stepped into Notre Dame Cathedral for the first time. You know, she may have thought 
and I don't really know that this to be the case, but she may have thought, I like modern churches. I like a church, you know, that looks like a, a warehouse, you know, and you got a guy up front with a little book stand and, you know, a couple of rocks and a palm a little headset him, mic, you know? Madonna style. Yeah, a little, yeah, a little, yeah, preaching and, I, and a band playing beforehand. She may have thought that, but when she stepped into Saint, I mean, into a Notre Dame Cathedral and she saw this Gothic building that had been constructed over hundreds of years, and had been constructed specifically to lift your eyes to heaven and to give you kind of an image of, of what heaven of heaven on earth. She was intensely moved by it, and I think that people want um, something deeper and something more than what the uh, modern society can give them. But anyway, I've yeah. rambled on enough. I'm done. Well, and my only po- point to uh, to tag onto that is that a, a lot of people just plain old just don't even understand what the church is about, and a lot of the things that they think were at stake in the Reformation are different than what they thought they were. And uh, it's Notre Dame is kind of evidence of that because, you know, how many people would say, but in looking at Notre Dame, why was not this building sold and the money given to the poor, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But when Notre Dame burned, uh, the internet and news media exploded and everybody was sad and nobody was sure exactly why. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because again, there's this, there's something, there's something deeper and richer and thicker about all of it, um, and it's it's more than just one guy who said that he didn't like the selling of indulgences. So I hope we've made it more complicated than that for our viewers today, over the course of this series. <laughs> okay. Yeah. In the meantime, Ken, we're gonna take a little time off. We'll come back with a whole new series of things to say on on the journey. But please do come visit us, chnetwork.org for the Coming Home Network, and especially come visit our online community, which is community.chnetwork.org. Ken and I are in there all the time, uh, having great conversations uh, with all kinds of people about weird Catholic stuff. Ken, thanks so much. See you soon. Yeah, thank you, Matt. We'll see you.